You are listening to the Live Diet Free Podcast. I'm your host, Esther Avant, personal trainer, sports nutritionist, and weight loss coach. I'm here to help you lose weight for the last time without sacrificing your quality of life to do it. So pop your headphones in, go for a walk, and learn how to become the healthiest, happiest, and most confident version of yourself. Okay, I'm recording this clip retroactively because, once again, my book review has gone on long enough that I'm splitting it into two episodes so that it's more digestible for you. So you're hearing this before you hear the intro, um, but just know that I've split the episode um, into two 50-minute episodes so that you don't feel overwhelmed in starting to listen. So part one is the kind of introduction to the book, Willpower Instinct, uh, overview of what willpower is, how we kind of misunderstand it, some things we can do right off the bat, just in general to improve our willpower. And then the first two of nine situations where I'm going to talk about specifically. So then in part two, you'll hear the other seven situations, what to do about them, and then our recap. Hope you enjoy. Hello, you guys, and welcome back to the Live Diet Free podcast. We have a book review that I'm so excited about because we're talking about willpower. And this is one of the most prevalent topics that I see come up in Facebook groups with clients on consults. Everybody struggles with willpower. So today I'm reviewing The Willpower Instinct by Kelly McConagall. She is a health psychologist and professor at Stanford, and she teaches a course called The Science of Willpower. This book is kind of like the condensed version of attending that course. According to the American Psychological Association, the number one reasons, number one reason that Americans say they are struggling to meet their goals is a lack of willpower. So, I want to start off with that because if you are someone who has felt that struggle yourself, you're not alone. One of the things that I see so commonly is individuals kind of weaponizing these very common experiences by telling ourselves there's something wrong with us because we've had that experience, that we must be the only one. I'm the only person who struggles with this. I look around. Nobody else has a hard time with it. It's just me. There's something wrong with me. So if the number one reason Americans say they're struggling is due to lack of willpower. And you think that you're struggling with lack of willpower. You are very much not alone. So this is not a personal shortcoming. And as you'll see, as we go through this review is likely that you're not actually lacking willpower in the first place. You just maybe don't because you haven't read this book and you're not a, uh, you know, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or you don't have any sort of psychology background. You don't exactly understand what willpower and self-control actually are, what kind of role they have played from an evolutionary standpoint, how that has shifted in more modern times, and why it's some, it might seem like something that used to be essential for survival or serve this great purpose now is kind of working against you. So what we're going to talk about in the beginning is just kind of a little bit of background on fight or flight responses and how our body is affected by stressors and then strategies to work on improving willpower and self-control in general and then nine specific situations that I know affect most of us. I'm going to go over what those are at the beginning because I know a lot of you are going to listen and be like, oh, I need that one, I need that one and most of us just kind of need all of them. So the author I think I'll probably refer to her as Kelly because McConaughey just does not roll right off the tongue. So 
something that Kelly talks about is how the best way to improve your willpower or your self-control, I'm going to use those kind of interchangeably, is understanding when, why, and how you lose control in the first place so that you can avoid the kind of traps that lead you to these willpower failures. She says that self-knowledge is the foundation of self-control, which I think makes a lot of sense. And I talk a ton about how awareness of anything is really the first step, because if you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what needs to change. So a lot of times we're just kind of I don't want to say blindly going through life, but, you know, we've got, got some blinders on and we just feel like kind of things are happening to us and we don't take the time to stop and think either in the moment or afterwards about what actually happened here. Can I pinpoint a trigger and a response and is there a pattern that I can work on addressing? So, to expect yourself to just kind of snap your fingers and have more self-control, have more willpower without learning about where your willpower is lacking and why it lacks in the first place, you're going to be hard-pressed to do that. She also talks about how, and the the suggestions that I'm going to give you from the book, there are a lot of them. There's some overlap, some that will address multiple situations, but overall, it's about taking these suggestions and testing them out in your own life. Like with a lot of things, you have to collect your own data, analyze it, and find what works for you. There's also something she talks about specifically regarding one strategy that I'll get to towards the end. If I could remember it right now, I would tell you what it is. Um, But she talks about how you shouldn't judge it based on the first couple of attempts. And I think that goes for really everything. We have a tendency to, I think a lot of us are hesitant to do any sort of work that is perceived as like mental and mindset related, it feels kind of woo woo. And you're like, I just want the tangible, like, what do I do? Um, And you, you know, maybe listen to a podcast like this and hear about a strategy and you're like, okay, I'm kind of a tough sell. Like I don't really buy it, but what do I have to lose? I'll give it a shot. So you try it one time and it doesn't like magically shift everything for you. And you're like, see, I knew it. it doesn't work. And you never try it again. So a big part of this is putting in the reps getting practice at these new strategies and finding that they're going to be more successful over time as you have more experience doing them. So don't just kind of feel like you're throwing me a bone of like, okay, Esther said to do this. I'll just do it because she told me to. And then use that to like pat yourself on the back. Like, well, I tried and I knew it doesn't work. So on to the next thing. Actually decide. I want to do what it's going to take to develop more willpower. I want to have more self-control. Therefore, I'm going to be open to needing to experiment, to it taking a while, to potentially doing things that maybe I don't see the value or the benefit right away, but I trust that it's going to be there if I get better at doing it. So you're probably aware of the the benefits of having more self-control. You can probably think in your own life, this is what would be different or better if I had more willpower. But she talks about some research that looks at people with better self-control. And there's a whole laundry list of reasons to work on improving this. People with more self-control are found to be happier, healthier, have satis- have more satisfying and longer relationships, more money, better careers, better stress management. They deal with conflict better. They are better at overcoming adversity. They live longer. It's a better predictor of academic success than intelligence. Some of this obviously is correlation, not causation, but just kind of generally speaking. If self-control, if, if more self-control is kind of lumped in with all of those amazing things, why not devote some time and energy to improving that for yourself? 
Kelly divides willpower into three sort of aspects that I think is a great way of breaking it down. So first you have your I won't kind of segment of willpower. And this is what most people think of when you think about self-control is resisting temptation. I won't eat that cookie. I won't whatever. The second piece is I will. And this is doing what you need to do, even if part of you doesn't want to. So this kind of ties into what I've talked about in several episodes about parenting yourself. You're not going to be motivated all the time. Sometimes you're just going to not want to. And too bad. You do it anyway. I will wake up when my alarm goes off and do my workout. I will eat the lunch that I packed, even if it's not the thing that I want the most. I will go to bed on time, whatever it is. And then the third aspect, I think is probably the most overlooked one, is I want. And this is the ability to remember what you really want when you're in the midst of a willpower challenge. And that she defines as when part of you wants one thing, but part of you wants something else. So we can all very much relate to this. I'm going to talk in a minute about instant gratification and delaying gratification, but that's what it boils down to is we all have things that we want that we're going to need to work for for longer periods of time. And we also have things that we want right now. And often those two things are conflicting. I personally just ate breakfast, still would kind of like a snack or something. Madison, I made cookies yesterday. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate having a cookie right now. I want a cookie right now. And also I want to feel proud of myself for sticking to my plan for the day. I want to honor my hunger and fullness cues. And right now I'm not hungry. I'm full. Um, And we're faced with these kind of challenges all day, every day. Part of me wants this. Part of me wants that. Can't have them both because one is in direct conflict with the other. What do I do? And I'll talk a little bit later about why a lot of us choose the instant gratification over the longer term one. What I hope you take away from this episode is that a lot of the things, like I was saying in the beginning, that you kind of blame yourself and you think are personal weaknesses or shortcomings are not. They're actual scientific, psychological reasons for why we think and act the way we do. And hopefully by learning the reasons behind them, it helps you remove some of the negative emotion from these experiences and helps you see them as more neutral and common and something that you can work to have more mindfulness around. So... At the end of the day, willpower is about harnessing the power of all three of those parts. I won't, I will, I want. And helping yourself do what really matters to you, even when it's hard. So, like I said, we're going to cover nine common situations. First one being when you notice that you're lacking willpower at certain times of the day. That for a lot of us, we start off with great intentions and then it's like this evil demon takes over our bodies at some point, usually like the witching hour, and it all kind of goes out the window. The second situation we're going to talk about is when you do something quote unquote good, for example, seeing some weight loss on the scale, and then you reward yourself with something quote unquote bad or something that is kind of in conflict with that victory. So losing some weight on the scale, and then immediately kind of treating yourself with food or drinks because you earned it. The third situation we're going to talk about is telling yourself that you will start over or be good or do better tomorrow or Monday or after vacation or whenever. The fourth situation we're going to talk about is when you have cravings. That ties in with stress eating and just kind of general counterproductive or unhealthy coping mechanisms for stress. We're going to talk about all or nothing behavior. Um, 
a lot of you might know this as a case. I don't, some of you, I think, listen with kids in the car. So I will not say the F word, but the efforts. Um, some of you have that experience where you indulge, you regret it, you feel like I already, you know, I already blew the day. So I might as well just eat and drink everything in sight. And then tomorrow I'll be better. So that one kind of circles back to number three about telling yourself that you'll be good or start over or do better sometime in the future. So you'll notice that a lot of these tie in to one another. Next one is setting goals, but not following through with them or being in that cycle of starting, getting a little ways down the road, quitting, restarting, and just kind of chasing your tail. The eighth one we're going to talk about is how your behavior is influenced by people around you. And then the ninth one is thinking about food all the time. So I know for some of you, a few of those are going to stand out. For others of you, you're just like, yep, check, 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 check. (laughs) I got all the boxes. What do I do? So we're going to get into that in a minute. But first, I want to go over just a really brief overview of kind of the science of willpower and how what's going on in our bodies at the times when we experience a perceived threat and the role that that plays in our self-control or lack thereof. So in our brains, we have a prefrontal prefrontal cortex, which is behind our forehead and our eyes. And this controls our physical movement, also our attention, thoughts, and feelings. You'll be interested to know that your prefrontal cortex is inhibited when you're tired, drunk, or distracted. So it's interesting that all of those kind of get lumped in together because you don't need to be physically inebriated in order for your prefrontal cortex to be affected. Um, So this is a big part of why when you're stressed and feel like you're spread in a million directions or you're burning the candle at both ends and you're exhausted, that it's harder for you to exhibit self-control. She then breaks down threats into two types, external and internal. Willpower um, challenges are internal threats. External threats are kind of from an evolutionary standpoint being chased by a predator. This is what triggers your fight or flight response. Am I going to fight the saber-toothed tiger or am I going to run away from it? Because you believe that your survival is on the line, your body reacts accordingly. So this is why your heart rate and blood pressure increase. You might notice kind of those short breaths, tense, tense muscles, basically a lot of processes that aren't essential for survival get kind of backburnered because you're like, hey, listen, nothing else matters if I don't survive this tiger. So what do we got to do to make that happen? This is also where if you're in some sort of horrific accident and you know people have the, the strength to lift up a car by themselves to you know pull, pull their kid out from under it or things like that. Um, then the other kind of response is to an internal threat. She refers to this as your pause and plan response. And this is when your instincts, which remember are still very linked to our evolution, um, when our instincts are pushing us towards a potentially bad decision, the prefrontal cortex triggers a lot of changes in our bodies to redirect any energy from our bodies to our brains to allow us the opportunity to slow down and control our impulses. So fight or flight versus pause and plan. Basically, opposites. Um, When you are in a pause and plan response, your heart rate will, and blood, heart rate will decrease, your blood pressure will stay the same, you'll take deep breaths, you'll feel your muscles are relaxed. What it allows you to do is take time to do exactly that, kind of reflect and take intentional action 
that doesn't always feel instinctive. So one thing that you can just start practicing right off the bat is recognizing when you are feeling threatened or when you're having some sort of physiological response and asking yourself, is this an external threat like to my survival? Do I feel unsafe in my surroundings? Or is this an internal threat? Is this like my brain and body kind of, or my, my brain at odds with itself? So that's just kind of the, the overview that your body has the ability to pause and give you a chance to slow down and think through situations when you are not, when you don't have like this external survival threat. If you have any sort of wearable tech, I'm thinking specifically of a whoop band, but I'm sure other um, like aura rings and, and things like that may also track this heart rate variability. This is a really good physiological measure of willpower or self-control. It reflects your body's state of stress or calm. And when you have a better, when you have better heart rate variability, you're better at ignoring distractions, delaying gratification, dealing with stress, and you're less likely to give up on difficult tasks. So those of you who do have this wearable tech, you might have noticed when you are under-recovered, when you're not sleeping well, and things like that, your heart rate variability is also low. And those are the times when you have the hardest time kind of pushing through and doing what you need to do. You're the most prone to give in to temptations and things like that. This is because stress activates your sympathetic nervous system, which increases your heart rate and your heart rate stays at that kind of high rate. So your heart rate variability decreases because it's kind of stuck at that, at that high rate. So the variability being like as, as low as it gets to as high as it gets, that's, you want it to be more variable. That means it's normally pretty low, but has the ability to spike up pretty high when necessary. So if it's high all the time, you're just in this like constantly stressed state. That's not good. When you use self-control, your parasympathetic nervous system steps in. It helps calm your stress, reduce your heart rate, and increase your heart rate variability. So engaging in activities that are truly relaxing, as in they result in a physiological relaxation response, your decreased heart rate and breathing, decreased muscle pressure, uh, blood pressure, muscle tension, um, those will help you increase your heart rate variability. So for those of you who hear, so if somebody asks you like, well, what do you do to relax? And you're just like, nothing, like who has time for that? Um, And you just like, don't see the value of it. There's one reason right there, that if having more willpower and self-control is important to you, then relaxing is something that will help you have more of that. You cannot live in this constantly stressed state and then expect your body to be vigilant about saying no to things that seem really good in the moment. Your heart rate variability is affected by a lot of things, including your diet, your environment, your lifestyle. Um, And one of the best things that you can do is learn to manage stress in order to increase your willpower. I know a lot of you don't want to hear this. I know I can almost feel your eyeballs rolling that you're just like, okay, but you don't know my life and there's nothing I can do about my stressors. And everybody always says this, but it's, it's out of my control. Hopefully, if you hear it enough times, at some point, it will trigger a 
reaction in you that maybe there is some value in learning to manage your stress. And actually, the author of this book has another book that I'm reading about midway, midway through. I'll be reviewing that soon. It's called The Upside of Stress, and it's all about learning how to kind of lean in to your life's stressors and not use them against yourself, not fall into the trap of thinking that your stress is killing you, but more so learning how to manage it in healthy ways, learning how to differentiate between truly traumatic stressors and just daily hassles and inconveniences and learning how to shift your mindset to essentially like accept the things that you can't change and, and learn how to change the ones that you can. Um, so I'll be going, getting more into stress specifically in that book review in the next couple of months. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to talk about some strategies to um, help you increase willpower and increase heart rate variability right now. So really anything that decreases your stress and helps you take care of your health will help you improve your willpower as well. Meditation is one of those strategies. And again, I know, I feel like I'm telling you a lot of things you don't want to hear right now. (laughs) You're probably rolling your eyes about meditation and you're like, yeah, 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 I've tried. I'm just not good at it. I can't shut my brain off. I always get distracted. Well, do I have news for you? Kelly talks about how the quote unquote worse you are at meditation, the better practice it actually is for real life. So there's no longer an excuse to tell yourself I'm not good at it. Therefore, it's not worth doing. It's actually better for you to do if you're not good at it, because then you are getting the practice you need for handling the day to day situations that come up. In a nutshell, all meditation kind of boils down to is catching yourself, getting distracted and moving away from your goal and bring yourself back. So there's actually a, a section of the book I'm going to read sort of verbatim. I might skip through a couple things, but um, she's, she's talking about one of the students in her classes who just was convinced that the goal of meditation is to empty your mind and just felt like he was failing whenever other thoughts would, would sneak in. And what she talks about is not just focusing on how well you feel like you're doing during the meditation, but also how it affects your focus and your choices the rest of the day. And this is something that I've noticed too. I think I've talked before when I've brushed brushed up against meditation that it's not necessarily something that when I'm doing it, I feel the benefits, but when I don't do it, I can feel the difference, which I know is kind of a weird thing to say. And if you've ever, if you've ever experienced it, you'll know what I mean. But the changes are subtle. But by giving yourself the opportunity to practice, you're just that much better able to respond similarly during life. Instead of getting consumed by your thoughts, you're more likely to just notice them and be like, oh, huh. Something, it might be, I've been reading so many books for the podcast that it's hard for me to keep them straight, but uh, it might be this book, it might be her, her stress one. But she talks about, just like thinking about your thoughts like clouds, that they just kind of pass by, right? You don't, you don't latch on to a single cloud and follow it across the whole sky. It just kind of passes your line of vision and then another cloud comes in and, and they're just kind of like, almost like on this conveyor belt. So she talks about how the student realized that even though he felt like he wasn't good at meditation, it was actually exactly what he needed to do in real life, which was catching himself moving away from his goal and then 
point himself back in the right direction. So in meditation, it's noticing that you're getting away from your breath and then focusing back on the breath. But in your day-to-day life, it might mean noticing when you're about to order something really indulgent at a meal you told yourself, which is going to be normal and bring yourself back to, oh yeah, I want to stick to my plan for today. Maybe you have a tendency to like speak your mind in a very quick, like have a very quick reaction that then you sort of regret and wish you had held your tongue. It's good practice for when you need to do that. And you're like, oh, I was about to say it, but I'm just going to let that go. Um, So you'll notice that all day long, you have these opportunities where you're being, you're being kind of distracted from that goal and have to bring yourself back. So that's what meditation is. So that's why she's saying almost the worse you are at it, the better practice it is. Because if you're doing a five or 10 minute meditation and you're having to bring yourself back to your breath five, 10, 15, 20, a hundred times during it, great. That's a hundred times you have practiced Oh my goodness. (laughs) I'm going to leave that in because it's funny. Um, That's a hundred times you have practiced noticing yourself getting distracted from your goal and bringing yourself back to it. So I just think that's such a good reframe for those of you who think you're not good at it and it's not worth doing. And to, to quote the book, she says, meditation is not about getting rid of all your thoughts. It's learning not to get so lost in them that you forget what your goal is. Don't worry if your focus isn't perfect when meditating. Just practice coming back to the breath again and again. If you're enjoying this episode, I want to invite you to join us in Foundations. Foundations is our six-week group coaching program designed to help you remove every obstacle standing in between you and the weight loss you're after. Learn how to overcome the overwhelm of getting started, stop buying into BS that only yields short-term results, and learn how to master the big rocks you need to lose the weight and keep it off without sacrificing your quality of life in the process. Whether you want to lose 15 pounds or 150 pounds, we can help you in foundations. For all the info and to join, go to estereevent.com slash foundations. So you can start with five minutes and you don't need to chant, you don't need to sit crisscross applesauce on the floor. You don't need to have binaural beats in the speakers. You're basically just sitting comfortably and paying attention to your breath. That's it. You can focus on kind of saying inhale or breathe in, breathe out if you want. Um, And when you notice your mind wandering, you just bring it back to the breath. And That coming back to the breath is what kicks your frontal fork, oh my goodness, your prefrontal cortex into gear and quiets the stress and the craving centers in your brain. Um, And then if you're able, stop kind of saying to yourself, inhale, exhale, and just focus on what it feels to breathe in, you know, in your nose, in your mouth, in your stomach, in your chest. Um, And continue to bring your attention back to your breath and you really don't need to be doing a ton of time I think the most I've ever done and I was doing guided meditations was probably like 15 minutes but I think if you are able to do even five minutes consistently you're going to notice that it helps in those really subtle ways that you may not attribute it to, oh, I started meditating, therefore I've been better able to remind myself of my goal. It's It may just be one of those things where you look back and you're like, huh, I haven't been struggling with this thing as much. I don't really know why. It may just be because you have been better training yourself to 
notice those distractions and bring yourself back. If I still haven't sold you on taking a few minutes out of your day to do it, one way that you can kind of get the same effect right now is to slow down your breathing to four to six beats, beats, breaths per minute. So at the very least, give that a shot. It's going to take so little of your time and the benefits can really be so vast. So just give it a shot. You're going to breathe anyway. Might as well slow down a little bit every so often. All right, so that's meditation. The second thing that you can do to increase your willpower and increase your heart rate variability is exercise. She refers to this as the closest thing to a wonder drug for self-control and that there are both immediate and long-term benefits and that it basically has the biggest effect in your prefrontal cortex, makes your brain bigger and faster, specifically in that area. There's not really a consensus on how much and really whatever you enjoy doing above being totally sedentary, even for a few minutes a day helps. So I'm not telling you you need to start this really strict, time-consuming, intense regimen. And in fact, low intensity is shown to have stronger immediate effects than high intensity. So actually taking a walk, walking literally around your house for five minutes or around your block, um, ideally outside. And um, to think about exercise as something that gives you energy rather than takes it away. A lot of times we feel like I'm too tired to exercise, but if you just kind of flip that on its head and thought, I'm tired, so I should exercise because then I'll have more energy. Um, that's a really good new way to think about it. And if your reaction to that is, no, but exercise does take a ton of energy, it does exhaust me, then you should probably pump the brakes on the intensity. Hopefully you have listened to, I think it's episode 38, about um, the best workouts for fat loss and that I have reiterated over and over again that more high-intensity cardio is not the answer for a lot of reasons. But if you really feel like exercise zaps your energy, you're probably doing too much of it at too high of an intensity and not recovering enough. So when I'm saying exercise here isn't kind of that loose, anything you're doing to move your body. There's a really good kind of anecdote from the book where she, I think, refers to someone who took her, her course and he walks or jogs or something on a treadmill in the morning. And he covered up where it says calories burned and he replaced it with a little sign that said willpower meter. And instead of waking up to burn a bunch of calories in the morning, he woke up and reminded himself that it was his opportunity to fill his willpower tank every morning. I just love that so much because I see so many women getting distracted by, I know I burn this number of calories on my Peloton, but my friend burns this many or my husband this many, or how do I start to burn more? And it's just, if you haven't listened to episode 38, go back and do it, but you're just barking up the wrong tree. So I love the idea of thinking about how many, you know, kind of willpower points am I racking up? And just by thinking of them in that way, just by seeing, oh, I I banked 362 willpower points this morning. That's going to help me so much throughout the day. Just believing that is going to help you have more willpower. The, the power of your thoughts is incredible. Uh, we're going to get into that in the, um, in the upside of stress episode. But give that, give that a shot. All right, last thing before we get into the situations and strategies. Things that you can do to improve willpower. Sleep. Hi. Just think of me as the bearer of bad news today because I know I'm telling you all the stuff that you don't want to hear and that you don't want to do, but I'm going to keep telling you because there's so much science that backs it and it's time that we stop looking for a quick fix or a pill or snap our fingers and it's all different and we start actually putting in the work in the ways that matter to see these lasting improvements. 
Um, so she says that less than six hours of sleep is mild chronic sleep deprivation that makes you more susceptible to stress cravings temptation makes it harder for you to control your emotions harder to focus find energy and it impairs how our brain and body use glucose so those of you who have been through the infant stage maybe you're in it now maybe you have toddlers now but you know when you are sleep deprived everything feels hard you are more prone to emotional meltdowns not just because of the the pregnancy hormones you are more susceptible to cravings. You're harder to get along with. You are just super low energy. Um, and what's happening there is similar to being a little bit drunk, not nearly as fun, um, but you're basically getting stuck in a fight or flight response. So you have increased stress, you have a decreased heart rate variability and decreased self-control. There's a study done about 15 years ago. The National Sleep Foundation found that on average, we're sleeping two hours less now than people were in 1960. Um, and because self-control is one of the most energy expensive tasks for our brains, one of the things that gets kind of docked when we're not sleeping well is our self-control. So again, this is not about you continuing to burn the candle at both ends, living in this constantly stressed state and expecting yourself to suddenly have more self-control. It's about doing the things that are going to prioritize your overall health, your brain function, and that in turn is going to give you the power to have self-control because you have the literal energy for such an expensive thing. Um, whether you can control the reason you're not sleeping well right now or not, um, she talks about how just getting one good night can restore more optimal function and that it seems like to an extent anyway you can kind of catch up on weekends or you can bank sleep for the end of the week or use naps or things like that it's certainly better to try to balance things out than it is to just continue building this sleep deficit and she talks about how a lot of people struggle to find kind of the, the willpower to go to sleep by their bedtimes that you keep telling yourself, I'll go to sleep by 11 and you keep not doing it. Um, so she says one thing that can help is to find the kind of inverse of that, which is what won't you do? So if you're struggling to go to bed by 11, you could try instead to say, I won't start a new show or a new project after 10. And that may be the kind of reframe where if you're not doing anything new after 10, that just gives you the opportunity to start winding down. If you've been winding down for the better part of an hour, you're a lot more likely to be asleep by 11. All right, so let's get into these specific situations and strategies for them. So situation number one, you are lacking willpower at certain times of the day. So there seems to be a lot of I don't know if it's I guess kind of conflicting research or kind of in, indecision about exactly kind of what willpower is from the sense of is it like a muscle where it can be fatigued to the point that it's you know depleted and you need to basically like save up and and restore it to get more of it or is it more like a feeling where it just kind of ebbs and flows you have more of it at some times than others but that seems to be kind of the the common belief is that the ability to have willpower does seem to vary. You have different amounts at different times, whether that's because sometimes it's totally depleted or sometimes it's just ebbing and flowing. It really is neither here nor there for, for lay people like us. We don't really care exactly what's going on. We want to know how does it impact us and what do we do about it. 
Um, but interestingly, there for a long time, the belief was that it can just your willpower can just get depleted. You have this tank and it drains to empty, and then you're SOL for a while. Um, but it seems like the current research is showing that that sort of theory only applies to the people who think that it's true. So that's really interesting. And again, kind of goes back to the power of our thoughts. So, okay, some examples of lacking willpower at certain times of the day would be you keep telling yourself you're going to work out after work and then just not doing it. Or you tell yourself you're not going to snack while you're making dinner and you keep doing it. For most people, self-control is highest in the mornings. So what's kind of, what's going on here? Um, Like I mentioned, self-control is really expensive for our brains. So when our brains detect a drop in available energy, whether it's because we're hungry or stressed or distracted or haven't slept or, you know, whatever, um, our brains try to conserve energy. And one of the things that, you know, it's like if you're, if you're budgeting, you're like, well, this is the biggest chunk of my budget. If I can cut that out, that's going to save me a lot. So you, your self-control just kind of gets on the chopping block. Um, and when we think that supplies are scarce, whether or not they are, when we think it, we have a bias toward immediate gratification, which again is more of a survival instinct where if we think we're, you know, going to, going to starve to death or something like that, we're more likely to take risks, be impulsive, get whatever food we can get our hands on right now because we think our survival is going to depend on it. Um, What's interesting and also kind of problematic is that we feel like we're depleted before we really are. And again, this goes back to our beliefs about what we're capable of. There was a thread recently in our client Facebook group about meal planning and just kind of generally feeling like we're too exhausted to do blank thing. But in reality, realizing it's not that there's some other sort of hesitation. It's not that we're physically incapable. We're telling ourselves we are because we don't want to do the thing, but it's not that we're not. So, um, so it could be that if you're telling yourself, Oh, I don't have any willpower in the afternoons. Like, well, I wonder why you don't have any willpower in the afternoon. Right. Um, and what we end up doing is, exactly that blaming our lack of willpower for this thing that keeps happening so what do we do about it you can notice when you have the most willpower and you can schedule the things that you want to do for those times so if if you are one of the the many people who notices you have more willpower in the morning than other times of the day maybe schedule the important stuff you want to get done for the mornings something else that can help is the pausing and reflecting that we talked about a little bit ago where even when you're feeling like you're lacking willpower, give yourself the opportunity to take a beat and ask yourself, how will I benefit from following through, from succeeding at this thing? And not just how will I benefit, but how, who else would benefit? And think about what your life would be like when this particular challenge is easier. How will it feel when I'm not so compelled to snack while I make dinner? Is it worth it to me to deal with this temporary discomfort to get myself to the other side where it doesn't feel so hard anymore? So she talks about finding the thing that gives you strength when you're weak, which I love. So what is this is why I talk about how important it is to connect with your why or the really the root emotional underlying reason why reaching your goal is important. That's the thing that's going to give you strength when you're feeling you know, mentally weak. Something else you can do is reduce the demands on your self-control. So what a lot of us do is we're just too tired to act against those impulses. So we need to not count on us being like our 
our, the best versions of ourselves and we need to learn how to support our most exhausted version. So I see this time and time again and I know I used to do it. It was really interesting to read through this book and I had all these light bulb moments where I was like, oh, that's why I do that or that's what I was doing. So I used to have a real problem with moderating peanut butter. And on a regular basis, I would grocery shop, buy peanut butter, and tell myself, this time will be different. I will just not eat most of the jar with a spoon. I just won't. I'll just be different this time. And that was me counting on on me being the ideal version of myself all the time. At times, I was perfectly capable of doing that. But what I was doing was ignoring the most exhausted version of myself, the version who was coming home tired, stressed, anxious, emotional, whatever, and seeking comfort in that easy kind of go-to action. So I think that's what a lot of us do is we just tell ourselves, well, this time I just, and yeah, under the best circumstances, you are more than capable of doing that thing. But why not also support those lesser versions of yourself, those, those exhausted, those spread thin versions of yourself? What can you do to set her up for success? If you know by the, by it gets, you know, you kind of get chipped away at throughout the week. And you know that if there are treats in the house come Thursday or Friday, you're going to eat them. Well, what can you do so that when the exhausted version of you gets to Thursday or Friday, that is not an option. So this is referred to as choice architecture, which is really just kind of making it easier to make decisions that are consistent with your goals and your values. I've talked about it numerous times. Simple things like AA, just not buying temptations, but pre-portioning them out putting them out of sight and hard to reach. These are simple. You've heard me say it a dozen times, but go look in your pantry right now. Where are those things? Have you done it? If not, keep listening and do it or pause me and go do it. But these are the small things that you can do so that you stop beating your head against a wall and doing the same thing over and over again and then just telling yourself, I just need more willpower. It's not how it works. Creating distance, like by doing those things, reduces the constant stimulation of desire. So if you're not faced with all of your kids' snacks, every time you open up the pantry or the fridge, you're not going to think about them all the time. Another strategy she talks about is just waiting 10 minutes. That when immediate gratification comes with a 10-minute delay, our brain treats it like a future reward. And there's a, a term she refers to as delay discounting, where a reward in the future is worth less. We would rather have $5 right now than $10 next week. So if you tell yourself, yeah, you can have that cookie in 10 minutes, your brain's like, eh, whatever, I don't want that. I want it now. Um, so tell yourself, I can have that thing in 10 minutes. Or if you're procrastinating workout, I'm just going to do 10 minutes and then I can stop. Um, what often happens is that you kind of ride out that that temptation. You either get started on the thing or you have resisted the thing and your brain just kind of moves on. Um, Another thing that can help is just stopping and asking yourself, am I willing to give up my vision of the future for this current temptation? That picture of, you know, picture I have, mental picture I have of, you know, wearing a certain thing or going to an event and feeling amazing. Am I willing to give that up for this cookie right now? Um, the others I, um, I talked about a little bit, but pre-committing. So she talks about kind of the, the idea of like burning the ships that um, you have to limit your options sometimes. If you want to pre-commit to a certain thing, how do you do that? Well, remove the other, remove the temptations. If the only option you give yourself is the lunch you brought, or if the only snack in the house is fruit and vegetables, then those are the things you'll eat. 
Um, and then making it difficult to reverse your preferences in the moment. Um, so this one, the obvious thing that comes to mind is you having great intentions in the evening, setting your alarm for an early morning workout, and then in the moment, it's way too easy just to slap snooze and go back to sleep. So how can you make that harder to do? How can you delay or block that temptation or your ability to act on it? Put your alarm clock across your room. This is another thing, just like pre-portioning your snacks and putting them out of reach. This is another thing that you've probably heard me say a dozen times and haven't done yet. If you are still sleeping with your phone next to your bed within arm's reach, stop immediately. I can't even tell you. I'm sure I said before, but this is one of the most impactful changes that I've made in the last several years. I did it as a challenge with my friend Chris when we were in a business mastermind literally years ago. And it has been such a game changer for me. It, it's just no longer an issue. I do not, I have not hit snooze. I have not slept later than I intended to in years, partly because I have a baby who wakes up the crack of dawn and partly because it's just not an option. If, the, if I have an alarm set, I have to get up to turn it off. End of story. Once I'm up, I immediately make the bed behind me. I do not entertain the option of going back to bed. So you need to be willing to do these things. Stop telling yourself, tomorrow morning, I just won't hit snooze. How can you make it so that hitting snooze is not an option? That's how you get yourself to behave differently. Whew, I don't know why I'm getting so worked up. <laughs> I guess I struck a nerve with myself. But really, you should stop sleeping with your alarm so close to your bed. All right, let's move on. Situation two. You feel good about your progress. Maybe it's working out. Maybe it's resisting another temptation. Maybe it's how much weight you've lost or how much better your clothes are fitting. And you turn around and reward yourself with an indulgence that is kind of counterproductive to those things. She talks about this as the halo effect, which is when we want permission to indulge. So we take any hint of virtue as justification to give in. And that specifically, there's a health halo where when we make a healthy choice, that feels so good that then we don't feel bad about the next indulgence. So this could be you skipped the onion rings that the family got as an appetizer. So then you order a much higher calorie dinner or you get dessert or you get a second cocktail because you're feeling so good about saying no to the appetizer. It's not that that first choice was not a good one to have made, but it's now using that to justify something that is then counterproductive. Um, so she says, when we use self-indulgence as a reward for virtue, we forget our goals and then we make a conscious choice to give in to temptation. So I know a lot of you have experienced this and you find it very frustrating that you feel like as soon as I start seeing some progress, I lose the first five or 10 pounds. And then it's like, I just start self-sabotaging. I spontaneously combust and I start undoing all the things that that I was doing. I start indulging more often and I don't know why I'm doing it. This is why. The the health halo or the halo effect, you're feeling good about it and you're using self-indulgence as a reward for that. So you are consciously giving in. It's not like you're mindlessly saying, you know, it's not like you're mindlessly finding yourself doing that. You're intentionally doing it. Oh, great. I'm down a pound on the scale. I deserve some ice cream or I was so good about donating blood that I should go shopping. It doesn't necessarily need to be, this is not specific to nutrition or exercise. We do this all the time. Um, so what's going on here is we have conflicting desires and being quote unquote good gives us permission to be quote unquote bad. And 
that we want to feel like just good enough. We want to get our, get our, get ourselves out of like the danger zone. So this is why with your weight, maybe you hit your highest weight ever and then you lose 10 pounds and you're just feeling like, okay, whew, well, I know I can lose some weight now. I'm, you know, now I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm under, you know, 200 or I'm under 300 or whatever. Um, now I can kind of breathe a little bit. Then we kind of do what we want to do. So, Another problem is that we can turn any indulgence into an act of virtue because we're very good at justifying things. So you have probably done this when you say, yeah, I had pizza, but I only had three slices. I could have had the whole pizza. So yes, that might be true. Maybe historically you do eat the entire thing and I only had three. So that is progress, but it's still an indulgence and you're still turning it into an act of virtue. So what this does is makes any form of progress an excuse for then taking it easy. It can cause you to abandon your longer term goal because what it does is that little bit of progress shifts the balance of power between those those two competing selves. You have your your short term and your long term. And by making a little bit of progress towards your long term goal, it's almost like it checks that box. So then the short term indulgence or temptation becomes the, the priority again. So she says that if the only thing motivating your self-control is the desire to be just good enough, then you're always going to give in when you reach that point of good enough or out of the red zone. This often comes up when we make every decision a moral one, where I'm, I was good, I was bad. I did this good thing, therefore I can do this bad thing. If you were use, if you still don't use those words, if we're how many 80 plus 90 episodes into this podcast and you're still using good and bad to describe your behavior, especially around food and exercise, stop. We, that makes you more, less likely to be consistent and gets you lost in self-judgment. And we lose sight of how these willpower challenges help us get more of what we want. So instead of seeing, okay, I'm down the first five or 10 pounds, great, I know what to do, I'm gonna keep doing it because I'm committed to my goal, we just think, great, now I can go have a donut. Um, And she has a quote that I thought was so powerful. We only reward ourselves for bad behavior if we believe that who we really are is the self that wants to be bad. She also talks about how every act, if every act of self-control is a punishment, if you're doing things and you're just like white knuckling your way through it, like I have to do this, my coach will be mad at me, or I have to do it because whatever sort of external reason, if every time you are using self-control, it feels like a punishment, then the only thing that's going to feel like a reward is to indulge. So what do we do about it? We stop thinking about these willpower challenges in moral terms. We stop saying good and bad. We notice if we're giving ourselves credit for positive action, that makes us forget what the actual goal is. Well, I got my workout in, so great, you know, done. When the actual goal is to work out three times this week or 12 times this this month. Um, Great, I had one healthy meal. Check. When in fact the goal is to continue eating that way until you reach this goal. Don't make the mistake of, don't mistake a goal supportive act for the goal itself. Just because you did one thing that's consistent with your goal doesn't mean you are done and you get to just like pack it up and go back to what you're doing before. 
Another thing that can really help is to keep exercise and nutrition independent. I've talked about this before, how you should have them on separate dials that one doesn't earn you the other, one doesn't punish the other. They're totally separate things. Exercising doesn't earn you more food. Eating badly doesn't force you to exercise more. They're two completely different dials. Another thing that can help is focusing on your commitment to a goal rather than the progress that you're making toward it. It's not that we don't want you to acknowledge your progress, but um, what she mentions is that when people are asked about their commitment, they're not as tempted by temptations as when they're asked about their progress. So again, because progress makes you feel like, well, I'm making some headway, so I deserve to have this thing that I want right now, whereas commitment is more focused on the, the right now. I'm committed to this goal, therefore, this isn't as tempting. Um, so kind of remind yourself that I did whatever thing because I wanted to. I have free will. I have choice. I chose to do this thing because I wanted to, not I was forced to. Someone else made me. I had to. Now I get to do the thing that I want. She also talks about how remembering why you did something changes how you feel about the reward of self-indulgence, and you start to see it more as a threat to your goals, which totally makes sense. If you are thinking, okay, I'm really proud of myself because I ate this nutritious lunch. Now I want to get the burger and fries and ice cream sundae for dinner. Why did I eat that nutritious lunch? Oh, because I know that it makes me feel really good to eat that way. I'm more satiated when I have protein and fiber at lunch. I have more energy to get through my afternoon. It's helping me reach my weight loss goals. Oh, well now suddenly that, you know, like cheat meal doesn't really seem so appealing because I just did this thing for this, for this important reason. And now if I do something that is kind of in opposition to that, it's more of a threat to my goals. And again, I'm just using food as an example. I do not want you to, I don't want your takeaway of this to be that eating a burger and fries and a Sunday is a problem. It's more about rewarding yourself with something that is you know, in the long-term counterproductive. You can fit whatever foods you want, make a plan. It's not a problem. So don't, uh, don't bark up the wrong tree there. Um, okay. She also talks about how we're so good at justifying giving in and we're really quick to credit ourselves for good deeds that we've done or even just thought about. And I'll talk about that in a second. And that we need to identify with our actual goal, not the halo effect from making a good choice. So she says, when you try to use past good behavior to justify indulging. Stop and ask yourself why you did that thing in the first place. All right, guys. So like I said in the intro, this episode has gotten really long and I want to split it up so that you don't feel like you need to listen to the whole thing in one chunk. So I'm going to cut it here. And if you want to just uh, go to part two, we'll pick up right where we left off. Otherwise, you can finish out part two whenever you have a chance. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Live Diet Free Podcast. Whether this is your first episode or you've listened to them all, I appreciate you being here. One way you can help this podcast succeed is to subscribe, rate, and review it. If you don't mind doing those things, I would love to thank you with a copy of our weekend survival guide designed to help you have weekends you enjoy that don't set you back from reaching your goals. Just send a screenshot of your review to admin at estheravant.com and we'll send it over. And don't forget to check out estheravant.com slash foundations for all the info about our six-week group coaching program, Foundations, designed to help you remove every obstacle standing in between you and the weight loss you've been after.